Well, Matthew chapter 25, we're in a series called Dare to Live Now. Next week, we'll interrupt this for Easter, and then we'll come back on and finish. This is part three in Daring to Live Now, and it's about eliminating regret. What was it old Frank Sinatra used to sing? Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do anyway. Elvis sang it too. Rick ain't going to sing it, but okay. It was a good song. Paul Anka wrote that song just for trivia. I wish I could go on a trivia show one time and I could make some money. I could, I could get your closets fixed, honey. If you put me on, you take me back to the 60s, I can kill them. Yeah, getting on the show is the problem. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five were foolish, five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no extra oil with them, but the wise took extra flax of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a shout, look, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up, trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, hey, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, no, there won't be enough for you and for us then. You better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Well, while they were gone to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids showed up saying, hey, Lord, open to us. But he said, truly, I say, I don't know you. And here's Jesus' comment. Stay awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, remember, this is a parable. Jesus is trying to emphasize a certain point. You bring that forward 2,000 years into the future, and you let theologians get ahead of it, and they're going to have the most weird application of a simple truth known to man, and they're never right. This is not about trying to figure out the day Jesus is going to come back. The whole emphasis is on being prepared, being ready for anything in life. And two of the saddest words in the English language are, if only, if only, being totally unprepared. My favorite story about being unprepared is a student in the university. He's taken a class in ornithology. That's the study of birds. It's a tough class. The professor announces, here's your final, guys. You've got to identify 25 species of birds just by their feet. And this kid goes ballistic. He says, well, you're insane. Nobody in their right mind can do that. I thought I was prepared for the test. I can't pass this final. I'm not going to take it. The professor says, well, son, you have to take it. I get to decide what the final's going to be. So the kid says, well, I'm not going to take this final. And the professor says, okay, if you don't take it, I'll flunk you. The kid says, well, that's okay. Go ahead and flunk me. The professor says, okay, you failed. What's your name? And the kid rolls his pants legs up to his knees and says, you tell me. <laughs> well, when you're the student, it's wise to remember one truth. There will be a final. Be prepared. You don't want to have to say, if only. If only I had studied. Now, this is a fundamental truth about human life. So Jesus tells this story. It's a wedding. Some bridesmaids are there. They have just one assignment. 
be ready for the groom. Have some oil in your lamp, be ready for the festivities. In Jesus' day, a wedding could go on for days, even a couple of weeks. But on the last day, the groom would come to the bride's home to escort her to the final ceremony. Then the celebration would begin afterwards. So that's what's going on in this culture, which helps us to understand the Bible a little better when you understand the culture. You don't get into weird 2,000 years later trying to figure out what this is. So a friend of the groom goes out and says, hey, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And everybody would get all excited. Have you ever noticed in our day we've changed it? It's the bride who walks down the aisle, and all of our attention is now focused on the bride. Nobody notices the groom in any wedding. He's like a hood ornament, just a prop, like a candle, like the music. But in the Old Testament, the emphasis was on the groom, not the bride. And that's the way Jesus tells the story. So in verse 5, it says the bridegroom is delayed. We don't know how long, but not forever. And the, the bridegroom, of course, is a picture of Jesus who one day will return. Now, this story is not just for people who will be alive when Jesus comes back. You don't have to wait thousands of years for this story to be relevant. He says the day is coming when we're going to see the truth about the whole world and the confusion and the mess is all going to get sorted out and everything in lives is going to be brought to light. We'll see the truth about our lives together, your life and mine. So the world is not just an endless random sequence of events. It has a beginning and it has an ending. Your life and mine will have an ending and it's all involved in the return of the groom. So in this story, there are people that got oil for their lamps, people who don't. And this business about lamps and oil is about your life and my life, about your character and mine. And those bridesmaids had just one simple task, make sure your lamps are ready. Now the significance of that is make sure you've lived your life in such a way that from an eternal perspective, your life was lived smart, wise. Well, can you get into that? Get you some of that. At the end of your life, you want to be, whether Jesus comes or you leave to meet him, you want to be able to say you lived your life wise and well. Make sure you gave yourself to that which was worthy and you weren't distracted by that which is meaningless and stupid. Make sure you're ready. So the bridegroom is delayed in verse 6, but then comes a shout. The bridegroom is coming. Five of the bridesmaids are not prepared. So they ask the wise bridesmaids if they can borrow some of their oil. And the answer is a resounding no. Now, does that sound or seem selfish to you? The point Jesus is getting at is there are some things you cannot borrow. A relationship with God cannot be borrowed not from your mommy and daddy, or from your children, or your spouse, or your friends. You've got to have it for yourself. Character can't be borrowed. You and I are responsible for our own character. A life can't be borrowed. And you're constructing your life right now by the choices that you make. And one day we'll all stand before God. And when you stand there, you don't want to say to the person behind you, hey, my 20s were really bad. They sucked. Could I borrow your 20s to show God? <laughs> the point of the oil is this. Jesus is driving home with brutal honesty the truth we all want to evade. 
I am solely responsible to God for my life. Not my mommy and daddy, not the government, me. I am responsible for my life. I have a will. I make hundreds of choices a day. I can choose good or evil, love or hate. It's my responsibility. And those choices knit the fabric of your soul and mine. I can't borrow that from somebody else. My wife can love God, and I can be 400 miles from God. I can't stand before God on the basis of her faith, and neither can you. It's for you alone. There are things you can't borrow, your life, your character, your relationship with God. And we go through life evading our responsibility for these things, but Jesus is hammering home the truth. Nope, you and you alone are responsible to prepare. And then we come to a real deep truth. It's possible to wait too late. And then you live with regret. You don't want to die in a nursing home on a bedpan saying, if only, if only I'd spent more time with the kids. Why doesn't anybody come see me? Well, because you were such a pig, that's why. You didn't love anybody. You didn't care for anybody. I've got a 97-year-old father that's got a life full of regret. Multiple marriages, you know, no, no relationship with the kids, and then you get down to your 97 and you want some company and you wonder why you can't reap what you didn't sow, right? Regret, regret. I'm just saying, everybody's probably got a little bit of regret somewhere, and that's why Jesus came and died on the cross. But my point is, for crying out loud, you're alive, you're breathing, you've got a shot at this, you don't have to live your life, and then end up at the end of it saying, if only, if only I'd given my life to Jesus, if only I'd been a better father or a better husband. You can wait till it's too late. So when the bridesmaids discover they can't borrow the wise virgin's oil, they try to run out and buy some on their own. But it's midnight. Where are they going to find it? No 7-Eleven, no Zippy Mart, open 24 hours a day. And then they discover those two sad words, it's too late. While the groom was delayed, it seemed they had all the time in the world. And a lot of our young people sitting in here, maybe some in midlife, you still think you got lots of time to make certain choices. Jesus is saying that's very foolish presumption because your life is a vapor. You don't have any guarantee about tomorrow. Don't brag on it, he said. But the day is coming, Jesus says, when we're going to see that time is unspeakably precious and too short. You don't want to finish it with if only. So it's not a story about trying to figure out the date the groom is returning. And too many teachers and Christian leaders have acted as though Jesus is teaching here, try to figure out when the groom's coming back. That is not the case here. There's no insider information as to when the groom will return. And I was raised, uh, I can at least remember back to the 50s, all the date-setting preachers and all the books written, who was Antichrist, all the way back to Mussolini and, and Henry Kissinger and 88 Reasons, Jesus coming back, the alignment of the planets, Y2K. I mean, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but how many of those books are you going to buy? Would you go buy this tape and go in the bookstore and get this one? At least I ain't going to lie to you. Nobody knows. I mean, if those guys were stockbrokers, you'd fire them. They hadn't been right in 50 years. You know, has it ever occurred to anybody to say, you know, maybe our hermeneutics, the way you interpret Scripture, could be wrong? Because it is. And so the whole point of this simple parable was to say, hey, life is short. 
I am going to come back. You are going to die. I don't know which one's going to occur first. Be ready. Be prepared. Don't live with regret. Don't go to if only. I'd have, I'd have known I would have done something different. In other words, devote yourself to seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness because the day is coming that everybody's going to see what really mattered in life. It's not about trying to figure out how close to the second coming Jesus is. When you're in the purpose of God, you're in the will of God, you're doing marriage, you're doing kids, you're doing your career, you're doing ministry, you're, you're doing your health, you're, you're doing life the way God wants you to do. You could care less when Jesus comes back. Why would I be worried about it? It ain't going to be if only. Have you ever run over, have you ever come around a curve and there's a highway patrolman sitting on the right side of the road in the bushes? Have you ever noticed how your prayer life improves? Oh, Jesus, help me. Oh, Lord, I hope he didn't see that. Oh, Lord. <laughs> All of a sudden, I care. If only I had been watching my speed. If only I had been more careful. If only I hadn't been talking on my cell phone. But I, I'm a patriotic man unless I see blue and red and white in the rearview mirror. Then that's not good. But have you ever noticed, though, when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing at the right speed you're supposed to be doing at it, and you find somebody sneaking into bushes over there in their, their little suburban, you don't care. Well, look at that. I bet that guy went by. I bet he's going to get him. <laughs> not bothering me. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not worried about it. So the groom is coming, and there are five bridesmaids totally unprepared. I guess the question is, how'd that happen? How did people end up having wasted their entire life? And the adjective he uses in the story is interesting. The five who don't have oil and are unprepared are not called evil or wicked. They're called foolish. We would say in our culture, stupid. Stupid. Why didn't you bring oil from your lamps? You knew what was going on. And that's what we want to ask. And you know what they would say if we could ask them? The same things your little toddlers say when you ask them, Billy, why did you do that stupid thing? I don't know. Right? I don't know. And notice the truth about how human lives get wasted. The characters who are not prepared for the return of the groom are not defiant. They don't shake their fist in God's face and say, I don't care about you. I'm going my own way. They don't rebel. They don't even decide. They just drift. That's all. As a general rule, that's kind of what happens in human life. When people get to the end of their one and only life and we ask them, hey, why didn't, why didn't you devote yourself to knowing God? Why didn't you lavish love on your children? Why didn't you become a generous person with what you had? Why didn't you take some great risks and adventure with God? Why did you spend your one and only life running too fast or collapsed in front of a TV or obsessing over security or pleasure or power? Why didn't you prepare for the return of the groom? And you know what they say? I don't know. It just didn't seem important. Other things seem more important or easier to do. See, that's... That's the kind of spiritual complacency that sets in on the human heart, a failure to appreciate and appropriate a sense of urgency about what matters the most. So we just fritter our life away on stupid, trivial stuff, if only. 
And that theme is so important, Jesus tells three stories about it. There's a story of the thief that comes suddenly in the night. There's a story about the bridesmaids we just read. There's a story about the servant whose master suddenly returns. And in every one of them, the point gets made that's the same. Don't live your one and only life in a way that leaves you saying, gee, if only. So, in the little bit of time we have left, let's talk about eliminating regret in five areas of life. Something good for all of us. Number one, no regret parenting. No regret parenting. In the book of 1 Samuel chapter 3, there's a high priest in Israel named Eli. Eli has two sons. They're corrupt. They steal the offering. They seduce the women. They use their position and influence as sons of the high priest to, to blaspheme God. Eli knew about it, but he, he did nothing about it, Scripture says. So look at verse 13, 1 Samuel chapter 3. God speaks. For I am about to punish the house of Eli forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did nothing to restrain them. Maybe he was afraid. Maybe he was blind. Maybe he was in denial. I don't know. But he knew, and he took no action. So imagine the shock he faced at the end of his life. His two sons are killed in battle in judgment. The Ark of the Covenant is stolen by Israel's enemies. Eli knew, he knew, he never confronted his boys and their inappropriate, debauched behavior, parental regret. Now, you can't control what your children might do when they grow up, but we can pledge before God we will seek to parent in a no-regret manner with God's help, and we all need help. Nobody's a perfect parent. But when your kids are definitely out of order, for God's sake, when are you going to say something? How many of you, you know, you know the story about the afflu affluenza teen? Three times over the legal limit, been going on with wealthy parents who are divided, and they, because they give him anything and everything he wants, he has no sense of responsibility or right and wrong? Are you kidding me? Why didn't somebody nail him to the side of the wall, pull his britches down and tear him up? when he was a little boy. Too late now, if only. Too late. You know, they ought to put the parents in jail. Why? What charge? Stupid. <laughs> You're too stupid to enter civilization. What happened to you people? Don't let wealth rob you of being sane and smart and disciplined. It's okay to have wealth, but don't let your children grow up a bunch of judgmental snobs who think they're better than other people because they can carry the, the name brand purses and wear the name brand clothes, how fortunate they are. And may I remind you kids that come from affluent families, including my own, you didn't earn it. You didn't make it. You sucked it off your mommy and daddy. You ought to be grateful and humble. And you ought to be willing to share with other people as well. You're blessed and favored because of what your parents did. Boy, that really got me in, didn't it? I, I, I'll be invited to youth group this week, I'm sure. I'm telling you, that's the tragedy. The tragedy is you, you, uh, you feel entitled. 
Everybody owes you well, you're, because you've got the car, you've got the clothes, you've got the girl, you're something. You, you jerk. You didn't earn a thing. At this point, you couldn't get a job at a shop and go. Well, I've never lost my brain. I know what it is to drive an old Beetle with 200,000 miles on it. I had one suit. It was $150. It's like cardboard and one, one tie. That was my wardrobe and a 45-foot trailer with roaches as big as a skateboard. I never forgot that. So God, God says, the rich answers the poor roughly. Don't do that because that could be you but for the grace of God, right? That's all I'm trying to say. Okay. I, don't be a parent that raises a, a, a snobby kid, a smart aleck kid, because if you won't deal with him, the law will, and that's going to be sad. James Dobson, a child psychologist, writes about a 10-year-old boy named Robert who was a patient of Dr. William Slonaker. Here's what he writes. Dr. Sloniker and his pediatric staff dreaded the days when Robert was scheduled for an office visit. He literally attacked the clinic, grabbing instruments, files, and phones. His passive mother did little more than shake her head in bewilderment. During one exam, Dr. Sloniker observed cavities in Robert's teeth and knew he had to be referred to a dentist. But who would be given the honor? Dr. Sloniker eventually decided to send him to an older dentist who reportedly understood children. Robert arrived at the dental office prepared for battle. Get in the chair, young man, said the doctor. No chance, replied the boy. Son, I told you to get in that chair, and that's what I intend for you to do, said the dentist. Robert stared at his opponent for a moment and said, if you make me get in that chair, I'll take all my clothes off. The dentist calmly said, son, take them off. The boy forthwith removed his shirt, undershirt, shoes, socks, and then looked up in defiance. All right, son, said the dentist, get in the chair. You didn't hear me, sputtered Robert. I said, if you make me get in that chair, I'll take all my clothes off. Son, take them off. Robert proceeded to remove his pants and shorts, finally standing naked before the dentist. Now, son, get in the chair, said the doctor. Robert did as he was told and sat cooperatively through the entire procedure. When the doctor was through, Robert was instructed to get out of the chair. Give me my clothes now, said the boy. Oh, I'm very sorry, said the dentist. Tell your mom we're going to keep your clothes tonight, but she can pick them up tomorrow. Can, can you comprehend the shock Robert's mother received when he stood in the door of the waiting room, totally buck naked, and they walked down to the elevator into the parking lot, ignoring the snickers of onlookers? The next day, Robert's mother returned to retrieve his clothes and have a word with the dentist. However, she did not come to protest. Here were her sentiments. You don't know how much I appreciate what happened yesterday. For years, Robert has blackmailed me about his clothes. If I don't immediately give him what he wants, he threatens to take off all of his clothes. You're the first person to call his bluff, and the impact on Robert has been incredible. There are probably some Roberts running around this church. But here's the deal. The longer you put off confronting destructive behavior, the older the children get, the harder it is to bring change until it's too late, right? So whatever it is, confront it. Confront it now. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes, because sentence against evil is not quickly executed, the heart of man is fully set to do evil. 
So when you know it's wrong, when it's out of order, confront it early, immediately. Not just with kids, but with everybody. Deal with some issue quick, and it'll be less painful than trying to deal with it later. Well, some of you need to resolve this morning to have that talk and confront. Will you do it? Well, if I don't get that, I'm going to leave home. Well, let me help you pack your bag. Let's see how far you get. I'm serious. And then there are good books out there by child psychologists, Christians, on tough love. You got an 18-year-old boy who's dominating the whole house in tyranny. You pack his bag and put him out and say, when you can live under the authority of this home, son, we love you. You're welcome here. But right now, you're a grown man. You're 18 years old. So, goodbye. You say, well, I don't know if I could do it. Well, then don't complain about the tyranny going on. And then one day when he becomes a killer or he, he ends up with a life that brings shame to everybody, then you, there's going to be, if only, I'd done something when I had a chance. So resolve now to confront. For some of you, parental regret or words of affection that you've never spoken. Go speak those words. Tell your kids every day. Tell them, I love you. I'm proud of you. God's got a great future with you. I wouldn't take anybody else on trade for you. And don't cross your fingers behind your back, because for some of them, some of them, those thoughts cross our mind. For others, the regret is time. When is the last time you did something spontaneous and unpredictable with your kids? My kids are all grown now. One of them married. We've got grandchildren. So I spend time with the grandchildren. I took little Mia, she's seven, to the thin air. And people, I, I met people from the church that were there all on the, during the spring break. And I can't believe you're at thin air. Well, I'm spending time with my granddaughter creating memories. So we shouted and took pictures and had fun. Then we went for lunch and we got what they like. And then we went to the spa and got her, na- not mine, but her nails done. And they're so tiny, they only charge me $5. And it only takes five minutes to go, they're so little. But what, what are we doing? Spending time creating memories, building love, building a connection. I want my kids to miss me when I'm gone, not hate me, right? So go home. Do something spontaneous and unpredictable with your kids. Kidnap them. Wake them up. You know, go home. Order a pizza or something. Buy them a gift for no reason at all. If you're a parent, would you say today, as best I can with God's help, I want to do no regret parenting. And just because your parents mistreated you, don't pass that on to your children. Well, they didn't hug me. Well, they didn't do anything for me. Well, all the more reason to do it for your children. My parents didn't either, but I'm going to do it for my kids, and my wife is always getting on me for spoiling them or whatever. Well, go ahead and doom me. I'm going to do it. I'm just, I'm going to, be, I'm going to stand before God and say, I love too much. I gave too much. I was too soft too much. I'll take it. Thank you. Judge me. That's okay. I'd rather be guilty of showing too much mercy than nothing. That's me. You be who you want to be. But I'm not going to die saying, oh, I wish I'd spent time with the grandkids. No, I am. I love it. It's not hard, is it, honey? I actually like it. It's kind of cool. I can't wait till she's 17. I can go get her a car. And then I can pick out a boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. Number two. 
No regret finance. How many have ever made a financial decision you wish to God you had never made? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I hate those stories that tell you when Walmart started, if you didn't invest it $1,000, it'd be worth $80 million now, you know. Who, who knew, if only? I read the book, Pour Your Heart Into It, by Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks, and one of, he couldn't get many people to invest in his dream, but one doctor invested $100,000 and got $10 million. Oh, shabba baba, yeah. The key issue is to think about the way you use your money. How's this going to look to me one day after I die? Yeah, are you a good steward? Uh, How you handle your money? There are two people in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. They're a married couple. They're in church. They apparently are drawn to God, but obviously they never dealt with the grip money had on their heart. So as people were giving generously to the church to support the poor in Jerusalem that were under persecution, they saw the attention they were getting. They were selling stuff, lawnmowers and stuff they didn't need, maybe a little uh, travel trailer or something. Well, they had an extra piece of land. They sold it, and they couldn't believe it. They didn't have to negotiate. They got top dollar for it, and they were so shocked. They said, holy cow, we can't give all this to the church, and they kept back some. Now, the, the, God makes it clear in Scripture that it wasn't keeping some that was a sin. It was letting the church think they gave it all so they could get the applause of being sacrificial. And God killed both of them right there at the church altar. Whoo! Can you imagine? There aren't enough ambulances in town if God did that today on Sunday in church. Everybody lying to God about your money is going to die. Oh, Lord. What a day that would be. And it was fatal. And then Jesus talks about a widow in, in Mark 12. She gave two coins to God, the last money she had. And Jesus said she gave more than all the wealthy people combined because she gave everything. She bet everything she had on God. And I'll bet if an investment seminar were taught in heaven, it wouldn't be Warren Buffett or Bill Gates. Maybe this widow who bet everything she had on God. So if the groom were to return tonight and your life ended, would you have any financial regret? Some of you are crushed by debt right now, and you need to get a grip on it. We offer financial freedom classes for free to get you some help. Then there are some seminars with a small, modest charge to get you out of debt and show you how to handle your money. Some of you have never tried tithing, and it's time for you to make that decision of giving to God at least at the floor level of a tithe. Maybe you tithe, but you haven't had an adventure in giving in a long time, and God's tugging at your heart. Hey, step it up. If you want me to step it up, step it up. Invest more heavily in the kingdom. Will you do it? You don't want to live with if only. Third area of regret is the area of sin. How many of you have discovered that bad habits just automatically go away? (laughs) I wish. I think one of the strongest if-only factors is going to be attached to sin. Are there patterns of sin going on in your life right now you have refused to face? And if you don't face it, it's going to lead to some major regret. Destructive patterns may be abuse, addictions, chronic attitudes that just wither your heart and spirit, and you've never seriously intended to do whatever it takes to stop. Some of you need to start praying, God, no matter what else happens between now and the end of my life and the groom returns, I'm going to do battle with this area of defeat in my life. Maybe you need support. Maybe you've tried and you can't defeat it on your own. 
Have you gotten into a small group? Have you shared with a couple of trusted friends who can support you? Maybe it will take getting into a 12-step program. We could get testimonies from people who are in or who have been in and recovered completely from drug addiction, from alcoholism, from uh, uh, sexual addictions, and they've got good sustaining lives. But they at some point in life said, enough is enough. I'm going to get help and deal with this thing. Otherwise, you're going to live with if only, if only. So here's the truth. Jesus will come back. The day is coming when you're going to die. And you and I are going to say, what in the world was I thinking? Why did I allow that to go on and on in my life? Why didn't I acknowledge my problem, confess it, and get help that I needed to do battle and root it out of my life? Number four, risk-taking regret. That's an interesting one. God calls all of us to a certain level of adventure with Him and taking risks for His sake, not stupid risk, not foolish risk, but risks of faith to believe God. When God delivered Israel out of Egypt, He told them to trust Him and take risks by taking the promised land. So Israel sent out 12 spies into the land, and the verdict came back in Numbers 13, verse 31, we're not able to go into the promised land. We're not able to go up against this people that inhabit the land. They're stronger than we are. They have more money than us. They're better educated than we are. They have gated communities. I I added all that, I guess you know. The people we saw are great in size, and we are just grasshoppers to them. And then in chapter 14, verse 2, then the people wail, oh God, why didn't we just stay in Egypt? A whole generation of people never went into the promised land, although God said, I've given it to you. So imagine the regret of being delivered from Pharaoh, experiencing the plagues and the Passover, parting of the Red Sea, being led by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. Your clothes don't wear out. and You get free food every day, miracle after miracle, and the promised land is still there waiting on you. That's amazing. Amazing to me. If you think miracles produce faith, read that. It did not produce faith. But they never got in. You'll never go into your promised land because you don't trust God. So we, we, we get a re- regret factor one day in life, if only, if only. And I thought, I'm not going to live that way. So what's God calling you to risk? Maybe it's a vocational deal. Maybe it's a ministry risk. I mean, the need to develop and use your gifts around here at Summit is huge. We need you. The kingdom needs you. What adventure is God calling you? I was just jotting down a while ago in the speaker's room of uh, just a few people. There are more. I just don't know who you are. I remember when Tony Warren a couple of years ago started his own business, a a sports athletic business, which is going strong right now. I remember when Mark Earhart worked for one of the largest beverage distributors in Texas, and I said, Mark, you are such a good salesman, you could do this for yourself instead of having a salary. And it took about four years for him to believe me, but he and Beth Ann took a major investment risk, borrowed money, stepped out in the danger zone, started their business, and now they're about to buy their fourth one. And that's been just two, three years ago as God has helped them. Then I was down to the Alamo Dome in the industrial area with James Morales. You see James out in the coffee shop. James loves coffee. James knows everything about a dumb coffee bean you can know about a bean. How hot to get it, what color it is, what flavor it will give you based on the temperature you roast it to. And I didn't have a clue. I just thought 
coffee's coffee. What did I know? But he's always wanted to have his own business. So he's now opened. I went down to Blessed. He bought his big roaster. That roaster is $50,000. And he's starting his own wholesale business, wholesale to restaurants, wholesale to stores like HEB. And he's in business for himself. It's a startup. He's launched his own. It's a big financial risk. Everybody's not willing to do it. Everybody wants what you get once you make it, but they don't want to go through the process of taking a risk and having an adventure. Art Mazzano sitting right over here with a shaved head. Art came off the streets, got saved, got serious, then gave, got into some education, and now has his own state farm agency on the uh, far east side of town. And now recently, this past year and a half ago, opened an organic juice bar down in the valley in Harlingen, Texas, which is now starting to produce profit for him. These are risk takers who go out. They don't do anything foolish, but it's risky to do something that in their heart they always dreamed about doing, they watch somebody else do. See, we ought to be the most entrepreneurial, uh, risk-taking people in the world. Christians, you got the Holy Spirit, we ought to be able to whip anybody. Whatever business you're in, a non-pagan ought not have an advantage over you. You've got, the, you've got the benefit of wisdom, God's Word, truth, honor and blessing on you, favor on your life, favor on your business. We ought to sweep the deck. I shouldn't have to keep taking an Easter offering to pay for the big celebration coming up this week. I ought to be able to do it in one offering. Boom. Done. See, when you get ahead, you get choices. And God wants everybody to get ahead. But it's not going to happen if you don't take a risk. When Cindy and I got in a, a little Datsun pickup and a, a U-Haul trailer and drove into San Antonio, that was the biggest risk I ever took in my life. I'm leaving a guaranteed salary. I'm leaving a low-interest mortgage on, a, on an isolated uh, island called Skidaway Island, Savannah, Georgia. I'm flying air. Life is good. I got money to burn. And then God says, now nah, I want you to go to San Antonio and start a church. And I thought, oh, I'm on drugs. No, this is not a good idea. Well, we did. Here we are. And that was just a started, but it was a risk. Yeah. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all this other stuff will be added to you. And here's what happens. As soon as God starts adding all that stuff to you, Christians get mad. They don't want God to add all that stuff to you. They want it, but they don't want to take a risk to get it. And you're not going to have a great life without risk. You can't get married without risk. Can you imagine a no-risk marriage? What would that even look like? There's no such thing. Well, I'm going to marry the perfect man. Well, Jesus is in heaven. You ain't going to marry him. It's there. I'm sorry. You're going to have to get one of us broken guys, and we have to get a broken girl, right? I mean, you use your brain on this thing. There's no no. Everybody that's doing well took big gambles from Microsoft to Bill Gates. Everybody. Everybody did. So what are you waiting on? It doesn't have to be that big, but there may be something God's calling you to do. And number five, here's the last one, relational regret. Are you headed down a road to any relational regret in your marriage? Some of you have a relationship and you need to leave here and before you go to bed tonight, you need to tell somebody, I love you. And you need to say it all the time. I've told you about getting into the habit of last words being, I love you, even though it's shouted pretty casually on the way out the door or closing a phone conversation, say, I love you. I love you. I love you. I do that with the guys when we close the phone. Hey, I love you, man. Boom. 
It's not an unmanly thing to do. I'd like that to say, well, I talked to Rick yesterday. I didn't know he was going to get shot to death at the mall or wherever. I don't know. Or some drunk's going to run a red light and take his life. Well, what'd he say? Well, he said, I love you. That's a good words to remember. Last words, right? Don't wait till somebody's in a burning building to say, I just want to tell you I love you. <laughs> tell them now. Give me my flowers now, not at, the, not at the funeral. Can't smell them. Give them to you now. Tell people you love them. Don't carry a grudge. Say, I'm sorry. Say, I forgive you. It's a choice. It's not a feeling. Don't come to the end of your one and only life tormented by the words, if only. Let me close with this article. A great Scotch writer and historian in the 19th century was named Thomas Carlyle. He married a woman who had worked as his secretary named Jane Welch, but he devoted all of his time to writing and didn't spend any time with her. He just mostly wrote. At one point, she became ill, and then that illness became terminal. But he was too busy writing, and he didn't have much time for her, and she died. And this is what the writer of that historical article said that I read. Quote, when Jane died, they carried her to the cemetery for the service in pouring rain. Following the funeral, Carlisle went back to his home. He went upstairs to Jane's room and sat down in the chair next to her bed. He sat there thinking about how little time he had spent with her and wishing so much he had a chance to do it differently, if only. Noticing her diary on the table by the bed, he picked it up and started to read it. Suddenly, he was shocked. There on one page, she had written a single line. Yesterday, he spent an hour with me, and it was like heaven. I love him so. And something dawned on him that he hadn't noticed before. He had been too busy to notice he meant so much to her. He thought of all the times he had gone through his work day without thinking or even noticing her. He turned another page in the diary, and he noticed words that broke his heart. And this is what she wrote. I listened all day to hear his steps in the hall, but now it's too late. I guess he won't come home today. Now, Carlisle read a little more than he threw the book down, ran out of the house. Some of his friends found him face down in the mud at the gravesite, his eyes red from tears rolling down his cheeks, and he kept repeating over and over and over again, if only I had known, if only I had known, but it was too late. And after her death, Carlisle made little attempt to write again. He lived another 15 years, bored, weary, and a partial recluse. The last thing God wants for any of us is to reach the end of our one and only life with a pile of regrets. That's why Jesus came. That's why we have the Bible. That's why the, He went to the cross. That's why the Holy Spirit is within you. And here's the deal. The groom will come back one day. Don't know when, but He will. And one day, you'll die. That's a fact. Don't know when, but you will. And so Jesus' admonition is, be prepared. Be ready. You can neglect paying your electric bill, but don't neglect Jesus. Don't neglect your soul. What's it going to profit you if you buy every rich car and every home in 400 counties? I saw Tom Cruise's mansion in uh, Telluride, Colorado is up for sale for $60 million. What does all that matter if you lose your soul? Now, if you've got it, in God is a blessing, wonderful. But I'm saying all that isn't going to matter a flip if you lose your soul and you don't get another chance. If only, if only I'd seen that coming. Well, God told you it's coming. So we need to be ready, right? Live with no regrets. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com 
and connect with us on social media 